My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. So I want to I wanna talk about something this morning that we all have, um, and it's called excuses. And we've all got lots of them. Uh, this morning, I'll just, I'll just give you a quick reference of one this morning, and it's slightly exaggerated, I'll say this, but we have our new youth pastor, Jacob Hawley, and I was uh, trying to invite him to be a moderator on the page. I felt like I was inviting him to be my friend, and he was like, dude, it's not coming through, and I'm like, Jacob, if you don't want to do it, just tell me, all right? Like, if you don't want to be a moderator on our youth page, just, just tell me about it. And he goes, no, this isn't an excuse. This is really what's happening. And I said, sure, man, that's, that's okay. So, you know, we've all, we've all got them. Like, we've all got simple excuses. So I thought I'd look up a few of the ones I found online at Reader's Digest for you this morning. Um, and share them with you. There's some pretty clever ones. And so for those of you that maybe aren't good at, you know, giving a nice, thought-out, crafty, creative excuse... I'm going to give you some. So here's a couple examples all over. So one of them is uh, this person's working as an apartment manager, and they've heard every kind of excuse for why rent is late. Husband got laid off, kids were sick, I lost money order, or simply I forgot. But the most creative excuse of all was this. I only had half the rent, so I went up to the casino to try to double my money. (laughs) I thought that was pretty creative. A little daring. Here's another one. It says, my husband hasn't been to the gym in over a year. And one day I asked him to come with me. No, he said, I need to lose a few more pounds before I go back. (laughs) The irony is it's like, we all feel that one. Uh, People at my high school used to tell a teacher, this is all for all you Harry Potter fans out there, that they had to leave early for Quidditch practice. Yes, she let them leave. Apparently hadn't heard of the sport. And she wasn't from around here. So here's another one. It says, I was a federal agent interviewing a young man for his security clearance. I knew that he'd been arrested for speeding a few years earlier, but he hadn't said so on his application. When I asked him why, he said he didn't think the arrest counted. Why wouldn't it count, I asked. Because I didn't have a driver's license. (laughs) And this is probably my favorite one because it's just so... Just perfect. Once my dad received an invitation to do something he obviously didn't want to do, he replied, I can't go. I have to change the furnace filter. Now, whenever anyone in my family doesn't want to do something, that's what we all tell each other. Got to change the furnace filter. 
So I started reading these. There's lots of good ones on there. Um, some I, I didn't bring back across, but I just, I just thought that I was like, man, there's some good creative excuses out there um, for moments in our lives. And, and I believe that we all have excuses, whether we want to think so or not, um, because we all want to justify our actions. That's what excuses are about, right? It's, it's just a desire to justify the actions that we're taking in our life. And I know we have a little bit of fun with, with those ones just to kind of kind of talk about. But I want to go a little bit more serious this morning because I believe that's what the Word of God wants us to do is to really evaluate where we're at in our lives. And so um, maybe for some of you this morning, you're in a marriage that's struggling. And maybe they've been unfaithful. Uh, something's gone on and you're trying to justify reasons to do your own actions. Maybe to be unfaithful yourself. Maybe you're gossiping about others and you feel totally justified. But we do this sometimes because we're trying to control the narrative or we're really just trying to hide our own weakness and our own shame that we feel. Some of us, maybe we're struggling with our health and we feel we don't have enough time to exercise or to get that meal plan or diet or whatever that is that changes. It's all about time. We're like, I don't have time for that. Maybe you're struggling with sexual urges. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe you're struggling with addiction. It could be drugs, alcohol, sex, food, social media, you name it. We've all, we've all got excuses for why we're where we're at and why we're doing what we're doing. We're all trying to justify it. And these are usually the things I think we tell ourselves if we're really painfully obvious or honest. No one will see. It's not hurting anyone. It's just a small thing. I don't have time. It's just the way I am. It's not that big of a deal. Many people are doing worse. At least it's not as bad as so-and-so. They just don't understand what I'm feeling. We've all got them. We've all got reasons why we're doing what we're doing. Good, bad, whatever it is. We're all feeling like we have to justify our way that we live and operate and the things that we do. And I don't say this to condemn you this morning. I'd actually say it to level the playing field. To go, we're all on the same page. Like we're all in a space where we're broken and we're making mistakes and we're falling apart. And we try to justify why we're where we're at. And so I I don't try to do this to go, man, I can't believe you. No, 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 we're all doing this. We're all wrestling with this. And even to connect it to today is, man, we're going to enter the story today. And we're going to come right back into Pilate, who we talked about last week. And he's a guy who's full of excuses for really why he won't make a decision about what to do with Jesus. And as we read the story today, we're going we're gonna to need to remember again that Pilate is the most powerful person in this situation, in this moment. He is the Roman governor over the, over the territory that Jesus is being tried at. And so as we enter into the story, we want to remember that. But the tension behind it all and what we pick up on today, and I'm going to show you, is that Pilate might actually believe that Jesus is innocent. Pilate actually might believe that Jesus is not guilty of any of the crimes that these religious leaders have thrown upon him. 
And so we see Pilate avoiding trying to make a decision, having excuses for why he's not deciding about what to do with Jesus. But Pilate won't make a decision. And so I'm going to highlight four of them today that I believe we see in the text about how Pilate is trying to attempt to deal with Jesus without making a decision about him. In other words, we could say they're excuses. And so Pilate's first attempt, we got to go back to last week's text, John 18. And we're going to go back into it, and it says, the religious leaders bring him, Jesus, to Pilate. And and Pilate says, then take him away and judge him by your own law. That's what Pilate immediately says to these religious leaders. And the reason he's saying this is he's he's trying to dodge the responsibility of what to do with Jesus. Remember, he's the most powerful man in this situation. The religious leaders cannot murder Jesus because they are under the rule of Rome. Therefore, it is by the Roman governor that this needs to be declared. And so what Pilate does is go, hey, I don't want anything to do with this. I just want to avoid responsibility. And so that's the first thing we see in Pilate's first attempt to deal with Jesus. As we move to the second attempt... We, go, we move on to our character Barabbas, which we covered last week. It says, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover, Pilate says. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they, sh- but they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. See, what Pilate's trying to do here in the second attempt is he's trying to say, hey, I'm going to lean on this tradition of the Passover as an, as an option to release Jesus and let the religious leaders decide. Do they want Jesus or do they want Barabbas and he's hoping they're going to pick Jesus but the truth is they pick Barabbas and so I labeled the second one as just he's trying to find a way out he's just trying to escape having to make a decision about Jesus and now we transition it to John 19 we, we transition to the next chapter of this and we come across what is the third excuse which not many of us maybe see as an excuse or an attempt to deal with Jesus but it's the flogging let's let's read it for a moment it says and Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put a purple robe on him hail king of the Jews they mocked as they slapped him across the face now I want to just take a moment and stop here as we, as we, as we kind of sit in this. I want to talk about this flogging for a moment. So i got a graphic I want to bring up here to help kind of illustrate this a little bit more of what's going on. Because we are talking about Jesus' you know, trial and crucifixion today. And so what you see here is this, is this wooden handle, these leather thongs, these, these small bone pieces. You see the tool that would be used on Jesus and how they would whip him and how he would be tied to a post. And I want you to see that because I think that's so important to understand really what's going on here is that there was different kinds of floggings that could happen. And it's believed that Jesus probably received the most um, serious one, the most punishment. And a Roman legionary, you could say, would sit there, maybe even a couple, and just whip away at Jesus with, the, with this whip. And they would do it until they were basically exhausted or called off by the person in charge. And so we can see that there was to the point that there's probably Jesus sitting there with skin falling off his body, his bones being exposed, his insides being exposed. And a lot of people sometimes would die actually from the flogging itself. 
Now, the crazy part about this is Pilate thinks this is a a more humane way to deal with Jesus. So let's read the rest of the text here for this. It says, Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. This is after Pilate flogged him. So then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, look, here he is, the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. See, what we miss in the story sometimes is we think that the flogging was leading up to the crucifixion. And yes, that's true. But only part way, because what we, we need to also understand is that Pilate is actually giving the flogging to Jesus as a way of hopefully justifying and sufficing the religious leaders and hoping that he wouldn't have to crucify him, that the flogging would actually be enough that the religious leaders would be like, okay, that's, that's enough. He's taking care of it. And so what we see Pilate doing in this third attempt to deal with Jesus is he's actually compromising. He's actually compromising. He's trying not to kill Jesus. That's what we see in the story. And then as we continue to move on, I want to go to our fourth attempt of what Pilate is. And we, and we read this in scripture. It says, away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. What? Crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. I think this is, uh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty, it's ironic how they go. Man, Caesar's our king now. Like that's, that's what it's like when you know you've hit low when that's what these religious leaders are doing. But what we see Pilate doing is he's appealing to the sympathy of the, of the emotions of Jesus' accusers. He's sympathizing with them, believing that Jesus could actually be their king. But he's also appealing to their decision to crucify him. He's, he's appealing to all that. And so when we look at this, I want to I make, make a connection here as we're talking in this Pilate and Jesus interaction. I, I actually want to go back to a passage before this. And this is, this is what goes on here. It says, Jesus responded, you say I am king. Actually, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. What is truth, Pilate asked. Now, let's just take a moment here and remember, Pilate's the most powerful person in this situation, in this moment. Why doesn't he just make a decision to say, okay, I think this guy's probably not guilty, so I'm just going to release him. Well, the the truth of the situation is that Pilate is more concerned about his position, his authority, his power, and keeping that and maintaining that than he is about the ultimate truth in the situation, that Jesus is innocent. That's what, that's what Pilate's more concerned about. And so there's that, there's that modern day proverb out there that says, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And that's kind of what we see in Pilate in this moment is that he's just not standing for anything. He's more concerned about keeping the peace and that if these religious leaders start to riot, if they start to, all of a sudden his job might be in jeopardy. And so therefore he's way more concerned about, let's just, let's just keep everything good. Let's just keep everything good. I'm just going to appease these religious leaders and therefore they have the power. And so you see this interaction between Jesus and Pilate, and and Jesus is telling Pilate, hey, I have come to testify to the truth. And Pilate kind of gives a snarky response going, what is the truth? And then he walks back out to the religious leaders at this point. 
Which brings us kind of to this irony, this paradox that actually Pilate is face to face with the truth, Jesus, who is the truth, who declares the truth, who's revealing the truth. His message is truth. If we remember back to John 14, Jesus declares, I am the truth. And so when Pilate goes, what is the truth? It's like you're face to face with the truth, Pilate, and you don't even recognize it. Or maybe you do, but you're making excuses to avoid making a decision. And so as we see this play itself out, what what we need to understand is that Pilate lacks universal truth. He he lacks universal truth because for Pilate, it's whatever Rome says is truth. Whatever Rome believes is truth. Whatever's the best for Rome, that's his truth. God is not truth. And as we see this, if there's no universal truths or absolutes without God, if people reject God, they reject truth. And so here's Pilate's chance to deal with God. But when we reject or even compromise God, truth becomes subjective, what we feel, becomes relative, what feels right, and pragmatic. Oh, this makes sense. So I want to spend a moment talking about truth and kind of how we've gotten here today. And I think this is really good for all of us. So I want to, I want to pull a graphic up and I, I bring this up for a couple of reasons, but let's just go through it. It says pre-modern is, these are rough dates. I'm just going to put rough dates out there, but just kind of a saying that describes the pre-modern thought about truth is that what God says is true is true for everyone. And so we receive truth from God. We believe scripture is truth. That is, that is the thought there. And then we started, we got into this enlightenment period where science comes in and it says what science says is true, is true for everyone. That's, that's the modern era. Then all of a sudden we work our way into what we now experience as postmodern. And it says what I say is true, is true for me. Notice the difference. It went from what God says is true, is true for everyone. What science says is true, is true for everyone. What I say is true, is true for me. See, truth is what you think it is today. That's, that's where we're at. Truth is what a group or subgroup decides, and it's, each culture has their own truth. That's how the world relates. Now, for us in this room, it's like, I, I, maybe I don't understand, I don't, I don't fully get what you're saying, but I want to bring this up because a lot of us live, and I would say maybe even in this room, we would say, yeah, the Bible is truth. The Bible is ultimate authority. The word of God, that's what it is. But we live in a postmodern era. And the reason I bring this up is because you need to understand how to relate to people. How to relate to what people define as truth in their life today. That truth is not the ultimate, the word of God. But truth is actually what I feel, what I experience, what I can understand, what I can grasp in my mind. Maybe even what I can prove to be true with science, using scientific methods. That's what people define as truth today. Now, we're not saying that God and science don't align. Man, there's great stuff out there for that. But I want you to understand this because sometimes we sit there and wrestle with people today and culture today because we don't understand. Like, how, how do they not live with God as the ultimate authority? How do they not live with understanding that there's a higher being or purpose? And the truth is they have their own truth. Because it's what they can understand. It's what they can comprehend. They have no universal truth. They have no absolute truth. And if there is anything there, it's not of God and it's not of scripture. 
And I don't say this to be rude. I don't say this to do anything, but to help us understand where we live and how we operate. Because you may be starting on an opposite end of the map than someone else and how you're talking and relating and speaking about God. And I think that's a really valuable thing for us. So what I'd like to do this morning is I would like to go back through these four ways that Pilate attempts to deal with Jesus and talk about how are we going to deal with Jesus? How do we deal with the word of God as the ultimate truth, as God, as authority? Because we all have to make a decision about Jesus. We all have to come to a moment where we make the ultimate decision about who Jesus is. Is he a man? Is he God? Does he, did he exist? Did he not? We have to do that. It doesn't matter what the person next to you thinks. It doesn't matter what, any, what you grew up with. It matters what you think because that'll determine your actions. That'll determine how you live. That'll determine so much of that. And so I'd like to go back through these four attempts and talk about it. So the first one we see is Pilate avoids responsibility. He avoids the responsibility. He tries to put on something, someone else. He tries to dodge it. Now where I see this play out and this is, for many of us in the room, it doesn't matter what era of, of truth you uh, relate to or, you know, is what happens is we read the word of God, we come across a passage in there and we go, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> That's kind of convicting. That doesn't really line up with the way that I live. And so what we do is we avoid that passage of scripture. Because that's the easiest thing to do. And so we still maybe read our Bibles. Maybe we're still, you know, trusting and believing that, <laughs> that this is the word of God. But we're not sure what to do with that passage there. Because that's a little convicting. That's a little challenging. And so therefore, we just, we just avoid it. We go, I, don't, I don't need to make a decision about this. It doesn't really align with my life. And so that's what we do. And I just want to share a passage of scripture with you because I, I just believe it really holds to the authority of scriptures and why God has given them. It's found in 2 Timothy. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So we see God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspire men to write the scriptures. That's what we see in there, to teach us what is right and what is wrong in our lives. That these men were inspired by the Holy Spirit, the working of God, to write these. And so when we look at scripture and we struggle with something, maybe, and we're like, I, I, I don't know what to do about that. Man, you need to understand that it is God working in you. It is God coming in, maybe into your preferences, maybe coming into an area of your life that he's trying to convict and challenge and conform you into his image. And I would say to many of us who wrestle with this, who maybe avoid or read through parts of it really fast and say, man, sit there. Let it do what it needs to do in your life to be formed into the image of Christ. Because that is what brings real life. I know it's challenging. I know it's hard. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not, but don't avoid it. The second thing we see Pilate do is we see him try to find a way out. And I'd say what a lot of people do is they just try to leave the faith when they come across something they don't like or don't agree with in Scripture. 
and they just ultimately just leave it behind because they don't understand. They can't get it. It doesn't, it doesn't line up. It's too challenging. How could God let them down? All this stuff. And they just walk away from the faith altogether. And the truth is, is that they, they walk away just trying to avoid, they're avoiding making a decision. Because they may go, man, I, I think Jesus was a really good man. You know, or I like his teaching, or there's probably some spiritual being out there leading this world and doing this, but I, I just, I don't need to worry about that right now. And I'm going, I just, I'm just going to walk away because I don't understand it. And I don't want to make a decision about it. And they're just avoiding that today. And then the third one we see is, is the compromise. And this is one that we often find within, I'd say finding loopholes because we're trying to find ways to justify our actions that still align with scripture. And I believe there's two ways to do this. One of them is to go, man, I, uh, I'm following about 90% of what scripture says. That's an A. Like that's really good. I'm missing the mark in a few areas, but that's okay. Like, I'm doing really good over on this other stuff. And we start treating the book of God as if it's a class. And I'm not, I mean, it's funny, but it's, it's the truth. And maybe we don't think about it in those terms, but we kind of go, you know what? I'm doing pretty good in my life. I'm living a pretty good life. And we forget that, man, part of prayer, part of going to God is repenting. Changing the direction in which the way that we are living and then there's another way to compromise, and that is to, <laughs> this is what we like to do. This, we all like this one. We like to look at the severity of our sin and redefine it. And so what we do is we go, and just a good example is, well, we're not having sex. We're just doing everything but that. Well, I'm not lying. I, I'm, just, I'm just stretching the truth. For a good cause, like, cause I just, I don't, I don't want all this stuff to get in the way or have to go through this whole process. And so therefore it's just easier if I just stretch the truth in this moment and just do this because it's, it's simple, it's quick. And so therefore we just redefine the severity of the sin. Now I'm not gossiping. I'm just processing. That's a good one. That's what we do. Because that makes us feel better. It helps us justify our actions. And then this last one is to appeal to the emotions of people. And I use the word deconstruct here. And I do this more to help us understand what's happening in the world around us. What we see is we see Pilate when, 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 let me see this. We come across something in scripture that doesn't align with our experience or emotions. We start questioning our faith. We go, is the Bible really real? Like, I mean, it was written by a bunch of men and they couldn't they have got things wrong along the way? Couldn't they have like, you know, things got copied wrong and the scribes, you know, people start trying to go into it and deconstruct the entire faith over some, an experience or an emotion that doesn't align with what they'll find in Scripture. 
And so therefore, they, they deconstruct it in a way that allows them to find truth that correlates with their experience. Now, here's the, here's the challenging part is people will appeal to their experience and follow God only as, as far as their experience will take them, though. That's the challenge in it. And so you have a bunch of people out there deconstructing their faith, rebuilding it. It's a, it's a, it's a hot word right now especially in this postmodern era where everything is the truth that I believe and I declare and that I experience and it's all personal and that truth only has to deal with me. You have people who are deconstructing their faith to make sense, to have this truth that is relative, that is pragmatic, but it's not absolute. And so you see, you see this going on around us within the world. Now, here's what I'd like to do I want to show you how the Bible is constructed. And now I'm getting into my apologetics here a little bit with you, but I, w- I want to show you this graphic. And yes, it looks like just a pretty rainbow right now. But what I want you to see here is that this was put together and it includes all 66 books of the Bible. And if you start at the very bottom left of the screen and go and work your way on that line on the bottom, all the way to the bottom right, you have all 66 books in order. That's what you're looking at. And so then what you're also seeing here is each one of these curved lines or arcs, you'd say, is a connection in Scripture. And so the closer the connection, you see kind of a cooler color in the sense of the purple or the violet down at the bottom. Those are connections that are closer to each other within the books of the Bible. And then as you get up to the top, you see these orange or yellow or green And those are connections that are further across all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And so this is, is, there's over 63,000 connections within scripture that are linking concepts, locations, and people found in different parts of the text. Now here's, I want to go even further with this to help you understand that the scripture was written by over 40 different authors across at least 1,500 plus years. That means these guys had different backgrounds. Like, let's just grab 40 of us in a room. Let's try to put something together and write it and see if we can come up with something even close to that. Yeah, seriously, it ain't going to happen. I mean, it, you, I could give you, we could look at the world and see plenty of examples of 40 people getting in a room from different upbringings, different cultures, and agreeing on the message. So that's what we're seeing here and what's going on. And the truth, what's, what's even crazier about it is that all these authors, all these things create one cohesive message across 1,500 years. One cohesive message. And I just used this one because I thought it was a good, that God is working to reestablish his rule over creation through man, which is the messy part, in the coming king and his kingdom. That that's what God's doing. That that's what the story of Scripture tells us. And so, I, I just to just to bring a little bit more realness to this, I want you to know, understand that Jesus fulfilled over three hundred messianic prophecies, twenty-seven of them being in a single day. Now. Here's a, here's a stat for you. So if we were to look, we, this, person, or this professor wrote this, wrote this statement about Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies, eight messianic prophecies, or fulfilling eight of them and the odds of that. And so I want to read this to you. It says, mathematics and astronomy professor Peter Stoner 
was made with the, made the statement that the chance of eight prophecies coming true by sheer chance is one or is ten to the seventeenth. One in ten to the seventeenth. That would be equivalent to covering the whole state of Texas, about two hundred and sixty-eight thousand five hundred and ninety-seven square miles with silver dollars two feet deep. And then expecting a blindfolded man to walk across the state and on the very first try find the one coin that you marked and put out there. You know, it's when we look at this, it's like Jesus fulfilled these prophecies that were written hundreds of years before he came on the scene. That's why when we look at the word of God and we look at how it's constructed, and I'm just giving you a general overview this morning, we understand that this is, this is no accident. This is one of the greatest pieces of, of literature that we have to look at. And we, if we look at what I showed you in 2 Timothy and, the, and saying that God's word is used to teach us and correct us and show us when we're wrong, that's a powerful thing to look at. That's why we hold so fast to the Bible as absolute truth because we see the makeup of it and the work that's been done and going, man, I can bet my life on this. And so that's why we spend every weekend talking about the scripture, talking about the word of God. Now, I want to bring up one final example, just how important it was for Jesus to, that what he was doing to, cover, to fulfill these messianic prophecies and show you one in real life. And so let's go to the end of John 19. I want you to see this. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. He's up on the cross and to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked the sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. This is the end of John 19, what we've gone through. This is Jesus' moment. And he does this. He says, I'm thirsty to fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 69, 21. It says, but instead, they give me poison for food. They offer me sour wine for my thirst. Like, Jesus is so concerned about, man, he knows what still needs to be fulfilled to show that he is the Messiah, that he is here to fulfill the prophecies that were written about him hundreds of years before his time. And then his final statement on the cross as he comes up here and he goes, it's finished. His very next words. And he bows up his head and he gives up his spirit. He goes, it's finished. It's finished. It's finished. I think about truth, and I I know I did a lot of teaching today and a lot of walking through this because I really wanted to just show you this because it's so important to what we believe as the body of Christ and what holds us together and that it's by our sometimes drifting from the truth that we we can hurt the message of the gospel. And so I I look at Jesus laying down his life, going up to the cross for the sins of the world, dying, doing everything to the T, to to the odds of him fulfilling all these prophecies and being the Messiah, all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And he does this and he goes up there and he goes, it's finished. It's finished. And I think about the truth in our life and I go, what is truth for you? Like really, what is truth? When you, when you look at your life and you, you look at the word of God, do you believe that it's absolute truth? 
Do you see it as truth or do you wrestle with it? And you're going, I, I don't know where I sit on these things because there's a man on the cross who's dying for you, giving up everything so that you would come to believe that he is truth, that he is the revelation of what is true, that he embodies truth. And when Jesus gets there on the cross, he's like, it's finished. I have revealed, I have completed my mission. I have revealed all truth. And I think that's a powerful experience, a powerful moment for all of us to look at that and go, well, what do I really believe at the end of the day? What do I really truly believe about Jesus? What do I believe about the word of God and all that it is? And so I just want to invite you, I'm I'm closing right here and just finishing this, but I just want to invite you in your life to evaluate what's your truth? What is really your truth when it comes down to it? What do you really believe? What are you, what are you skipping over? What are you avoiding? What, what, do your actions in your life, do they line up? Do, does it all line up? Or is it like I'm, 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 looking at, I'm looking at the word of God as if I'm like passing a class. Because the thing is, it says we all fall short. We all fall short. That's why we need a savior. We all have excuses. That's why we need a savior. So what's your excuse when you look at the word of God and you go, man, I, I'm wrestling with this. I don't get, what is it? Is it your emotions? Is it what's pragmatic to you? What's practical? What makes sense in your world? Like, what is your excuse for when you look at the word of God and you go, I, I can't, I count on this. Can I believe this? I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I can't align all my actions. It's like today, even just with the whole mask thing, it's like deference over preference, James says. Right? That, that's a tough one. That's a tough one because I know what the word of God says. We've been wrestling with it all week. What does the word of God say? Because that's what we want to follow in this moment. And it's tough and it's gray. And we want, to, we want to submit to our governing authorities because we find that in Scripture. We also want to submit to Scripture because it's the highest authority of all. And so we're left in this tension and we're left in this place of going, what is truth? Everyone's looking for it. Everyone's trying to find it. Everyone's going somewhere to find truth. And now the problem is you can't find it anywhere but the word of God. And so eventually what it has to become is an emotion or subjective or what makes sense in my head or in my mind or in my experience. And so therefore we start coming up with our own truths because, well, you can't challenge that. You can't push back on it. It's my truth. But the only truth we have is the word of God. It's the only thing we can stand on. In the moment that we try to pull one thing out of it and go, okay, I can follow all this, but I'm going to pull this out. I go, then what makes the rest of it true if you can just pull one thing out? That's a slippery slope, my friends. So the whole thing together is the truth. And so we are called to submit our lives to it. That we are called to show love to one another over our preferences. That we are to come and lay down what we feel are our rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus had every right to walk away from that moment on the cross. He had every right. He could have done it. And the very people that are sitting there, no, 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 crucify him, crucify him, are the very people that he's dying for. 
Jesus lays down his rights so that those people that want to put him up there are the very ones that can experience the forgiveness of God, that can experience real truth. And that's what he invites us into. And so I don't know what you're wrestling with. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what truth you think you can't find. But Jesus was very clear. He goes, it's finished. It's all done. And I know that's really challenging for us. I know that's a struggle. And if you're wrestling with that, we're here for you. We're all, we're all wrestling through this together. But we have something to stand on. The word of God. So I want to close in prayer, and I just want to challenge you. Maybe this week it's you need to, worship team, you can come on up. Um, But I just want you to be able to maybe dig into Scripture and just read it this week. And go, maybe I've I've drifted away from reading it. Maybe it hasn't really, it, it kind of feels like a chore or work. And I would just say, man, just open that thing up and let it speak. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It'll come into your life. And I believe that if you go, hey, Lord, I, I need you to just reveal to me yourself this week. I believe when you open that up and you meditate on it and you read through it and you see what's there word for word, God will speak. God will reveal truth to you. God will reveal to you. Maybe <laughs> what I always find is he doesn't reveal always what, I'm, what I want him to reveal. <laughs> but what he needs to reveal to me. And so I just want to close in prayer and just invite you into that. So God, thank you for who you are and what you, what you do. Um, man, we need you. Lord, it's a, it's a crazy season out there. It's a crazy culture that we live in right now when it comes to figuring out what is ultimate truth. But the, the beauty of it is, is that we can stand on your word. We can stand on what you said. We can stand on the fact that Jesus is truth, that his revelation of who we are, of who he is, is is truth. That the message is truth about sin and man and holiness, all that, Lord. We can stand on that. We may not always understand it. We may not always understand what we're preaching or saying or communicating, Lord, but that You gave us the good news. You gave us the word of God as truth. And I pray that we as a church would submit to it above all else in our lives, that we would make you the ultimate authority, Lord, by placing the word, trusting, Lord, that you didn't make any mistakes, trusting that you inspired men to write this thing and to put it together and to craft it in such a beautiful way that there's over 63,000 connections across 1,500 years, God, that we can look at this thing and go, man, I, I can count on it. I can trust it as teaching me a way to live and to follow you, Father. So teach us this week. Convict us to read it this week, Lord. Read your word and fall in love with it. And believe it is absolute truth. Not our emotions, not our feelings, not what we believe, everything else, but the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.